we stand today. The Business Method with a shout out. The Business Method. The Business Method Podcast. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Entrepreneurs, systems, methods, tools, and tactics. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, people of all ages, I'm your host, Chris Reynolds, and welcome to the Business Method Podcast, a podcast featuring over 500 episodes of entrepreneurs and high-performance experts dissecting their different methods, tools, and strategies so we can apply them to our businesses and lives. We've been fortunate enough to interview some of the leading experts in business and performance today. The billionaire CEO of Priceline, Jeff Hoffman, the CEO of Chipotle, Monty Moran, world's top big wave surfer, Laird Hamilton, the first black woman to build a billion dollar company, Janet Halroyd, world's top investment expert, Jim Rogers, and the list goes on and on. All of these guests you can find on the podcast backlog using Apple, Spotify, YouTube, Google, and any podcast app you prefer. Also, you guys, have you started listening to our micro high performance episodes yet? We've taken the most powerful tips and tricks from over 400 interviews that our guests have shared on how to optimize their own personal performance, and we've made them into digestible micro-podcast episodes that are just 2 to 10 minutes long. We publish these on Monday and Friday each week, and those episodes are labeled as HP number 123456 and so on. Those episodes are live now, and they're designed for you to consume some quick, high-quality content while you only have a few minutes to spare. So be sure to subscribe to the Business Method Podcast on your favorite app so you can get those delivered as soon as they're live. And now, let's hop into today's episode. The Business Method. Hey listeners, real quick before we get started, I wanted to tell you about our trips and adventures for entrepreneurs. We have live events in different locations around the world, luxury trips to the Caribbean, adventurous trips to knock off your bucket list, and of course some private business events as well. If you're an entrepreneur, we'd love to have you join us. Make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at thebusinessmethod.com to stay updated. And for those established entrepreneurs out there that want to be involved in a community that is curated specifically for seasoned business minds, then we have a group for you. Inside this group, we have private live events in different locations around the world specifically for our members. We get those members in a place where they can connect, collaborate, and grow their companies faster just by being around one another. We also organize private podcast viewings and Q&A sessions with some of the world's top entrepreneurs like Jim Rogers, Alex Hermosi, the CEO of Chipotle, the marketing mind behind GoPro. And as a member of our group, you'll get to hop on calls with our podcast guests regularly to ask them any questions you want. And the last benefit is access to private world-class masterminds that are specifically curated for whatever challenges you're going through at the time. Our purpose with this private community is to help you expand your network, connect with some of the brightest minds in business today, and help one another overcome business challenges faster. You can learn more about our community at thebusinessmethod.com. Remember, subscribe to stay updated. And now, let's hop into today's show. The Business Method Podcast featuring Chris Reynolds. Hey listeners, welcome to the show today. And I'm excited to welcome our guest. By the time he received his undergraduate degree in philosophy, he already started three companies. He was named by Fortune Magazine as one of the world's 50 greatest leaders alongside of Bill Gates and Tim Cook. He was awarded Inc. Magazine's 30 Under 30 Entrepreneurs, and Forbes has identified him as one of the top 30 most impactful entrepreneurs. On top of that, the White House awarded him with the Top 100 Entrepreneurs in the U.S. Impact Award. Our guest 
today is a serial entrepreneur, Daniel Epstein, and he is the founder and CEO of Unreasonable Group. Unreasonable Group partners with multinational institutions and revered brands to align them with impactful growth stage entrepreneurs entrepreneurs. Today, Unreasonable actively supports over 250 entrepreneurs who have raised more than $6.9 billion in financing, generated over $5.2 billion in revenue, and are impacting the lives of more than 730 million individuals across 180 countries. It is truly a global community of entrepreneurs that is shaping trillion-dollar industries and upliving the lives of more than 720 million people. And he's on the podcast today. Daniel, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, thanks for having me, Chris. And uh, uh, you read that bio. I don't, I don't believe a word of it. I, <laughs> it's like, who are you talking about? I, uh, but yeah, you know, excited to be here to dive in with you. Yeah, I, I know the feeling because when I read my own bio, I'm like, eh, that doesn't sound like me because I know me really well <laughs> and, and all my vulnerabilities and insecurities. Yeah. And then somebody else reads that and they're like, yeah, that's totally you. That makes it so, yeah. Yeah, what happened to chopping wood and like mint tea? Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can throw that in there too. Yeah, is, a, yeah, cool. is an avid wood chopper and yes. mint tea drinker, yes. Yes, done. <laughs> no, very grateful to be here though, Chris, and look, looking forward to diving in with you. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on the show. Um I, well, first off, it's it's incredible what you've accomplished in your life, and, and I'm very impressed with it. And I have to ask, I don't know, how, how old are you? 36, just 36. in December. All right. Happy yeah. late birthday. Thanks, man. Um, so what really, what the first line that, that I received, so I have somebody that does the show notes and they send it over. And the yeah. first thing I saw was by the time that, that you received your under, undergraduate degree in philosophy, mm. you started three companies. Yeah. And I'm always fascinated with this because we had um, Jeff Hoffman, Priceline, oh, yeah. uh, Priceline awesome. guy. Yeah. We yeah. had him on the show and he did yeah. a similar thing. Like he was a you know, came from a poor family in Arizona and he landed at Harvard and he didn't yeah. have any way to pay his tuition. So he's like, I'm going to start a company so I can pay my tuition. Yeah. And when I was in college, I was like, how can I get loans? Cause all I can think about is partying and girls. And then I yeah. show up to class, you know, from time to time. Yep. Um, but like when you're, when you were there, had you started a business before you even went to college or did you land in college? Like, tell us that story. Yeah, I mean, not, not nothing substantive. Uh, you know, when I was really young, I like put flyers in people's mailboxes to do lawn work, and that you know maybe you could say that turned into a business. But I am I, I wouldn't you, go where, that far. Where, where yeah. did you grow up at? Um, so I was, I was born born in Vancouver in Canada. Okay. Okay. Uh, makes me a really proud Canadian. Yeah. And everybody thinks I'm a charlatan because I lived in Canada for three days. It was quick. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mom drove across the border, gave birth, came home. The parents were Canadian. And so okay. free healthcare and they wanted me to be a dual citizen. Nice. And so grew up in the U.S. in a small town called Blaine, Washington. I am at that time, it was about 2000 people. Maybe now it's closer to four. I am, and it's in the, the very corner of the Pacific Northwest of Washington on the border with Canada. And I, mm -hmm. I grew up playing in the woods. We had you know, maybe five acres of forest that went into a couple hundred. And that yeah. was, that was where I sought refuge. Yeah. Um, I, I was just horsing around with my brothers and friends back there. Um, but uh, yeah, I did. It actually is, it is relevant to this story of, you know, inspiring this entrepreneurial path. I had um, still, still one of my best friends um, though. He's now up in Norway. I am, um, guy his name is brendan mulholland and we both grew up grew up in this small town and uh -huh. um 
I, in a lot of ways, Brendan and I were really similar. I am, but it's just, I just think it's true. I just think he's better at everything, um, at least by objective measures. I yeah. am, he, yeah, he had a double full ride to university scholastic and athletic. I am, he was, um, you know, varsity team. Now it's a small town, but of every sport that you could play when he was a freshman and so on and so forth. And just, he's just brilliant. And he was, he was so smart. He was the kind of person who um, you couldn't tell him what to do. I am, and I think I was just, it wasn't that I was so intelligent. I was just more irreverent. I am, and I am, you know, questioning things when we were younger, but we had both agreed that when we got older, we were either going to become what we thought of as pirates I am, or, or entrepreneurs. And, and, and the rationale was really simple is just, we just didn't, you know, get along with the status quo of what, you know, business as usual. And so the pirate life lived outside of the status quo, Uh basically just said, fuck it. Right. I'm, I'm going to do my own thing. I am. And the entrepreneurial life was about trying to change the status quo, dedicating work towards that end. And uh, what we meant by pirate was his dad was a commercial fisherman um, up in Alaska. Um, So he'd fish salmon for, you know, six weeks out of the year. um, And you can make a living off of that. Um, And I'd always thought that that's what I would be. And Brendan would be the entrepreneur because he's so smart. I am. And uh, it actually, we, we had a role reversal. So he, he okay. literally does that now. He captains his own boat up in Alaska about six weeks out of the year. The rest of the year, he doesn't work. He doesn't um, you know, need to kind of pay into that um, I, I'm kind of common path of, yeah. of having a career. Right? He's got family up in Norway now, and he just lives life to his fullest and constantly learns new things. And um, I went the entrepreneurial path. Uh, but, and so I had that intention going into university Mm -hmm. right either be an entrepreneur or um live it kind of outside of the status quo Um, and what really compelled me into startups in a lot of ways was was philosophy like yeah i I came to university studying math finance and economics Mm -hmm. um because i figured if i'm going to do this entrepreneurial thing i should i should have some of the tools um and and i dropped all three degrees I am, and it was in my first semester, I had to take a humanities 101 course. I ended up being philosophy, intro to philosophy, because it was in the, it was in the same building as my dorm. So I could wake up you know, at 10 a.m. and go to class in my pajamas. It was the uh-huh. only reason I picked it. Nice. And I, I remember, I am, and, it, and it sounds like I'm romanticizing it, but it was true. I sat in the very first uh, intro to philosophy class and my eyes just got huge. I was, you know, captivated almost with a sense of wonderment because I realized I was going to learn how to think instead of what to think. Yeah. I am. And the other disciplines, although there is a how to think, you know, with economics and so on and and mathematics, but I'm, it's much more about what to think Mm -hmm. I am. And in philosophy, more importantly, I was going to learn how to question. And so I dove straight into it. You know, the way I describe it is it was, it was like hedonistic mind candy. Like I just loved it. And now similar to you, um, the, the other thing that happened is I realized because I loved philosophy so much, I didn't have to go to class that often. Um, I could actually, I could be autodidactic. Um, okay. Actually, I remember, I remember looking up that word when I was 18. Um, and it, uh, autodidactic means right, self-taught or self-learning. Yeah. And I remember when I was Googling it, I was like, oh my God, I'm doing the actual practice of the work. <laughs> but but I am, it was just a deep curiosity um, in questioning everything that I loved. And so I could read and write on my own, didn't mm. have to go to class that much. And that gave me ample free time to then say, okay, if I'm going to question everything and, and I'm in this moment in time in university where 
there is this spaciousness where I can just experiment with what is it that I want to do or eventually become, whether that's inside or outside of that status quo. But I figured I might as well. And so I, I got really excited about starting companies um, because now I had a lot of free time. I am a, and I would journal. I, am, I used to be really avid journaler and I wrote out all these different business ideas. I wouldn't call them plans. Um, and they, they were all you know rubbish to me right at that time. Um, okay. Nothing's resonating. And I realized I was asking the wrong question in hindsight, which was, um, you know, what do I want to do? What type of company do I want to start? Was it going to be a brick and mortar business or an apparel company or this new thing, you know, in software called social media, whatever that was. Right. Um, and it was the wrong question, right? I was asking myself, what do I want to do instead of why? Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until the end of my first semester, I was sitting with, with my journals. It was at night. I am. Um, and uh, I again, I put on my 18 year old philosopher's hat. Um, I said, what do all entrepreneurs have in common? And I wrote in a, a line in my journal, I said, all entrepreneurs design solutions to problem sets. It's what every business in the world is, is designed to do. Right. I wrote on the second line, well, I can choose the nature of the problem sets I want to solve. And I wrote on the third line, therefore, I'm only going to work on problem sets worthy of my life's work. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what catapulted me down this path. It was, it was a really simple realization. I didn't know anything. About Did 18 startup. too. That's incredible. Like, Just turning 19. Yeah. 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 It was in yeah. December. Yeah. I had, but, but it was really simple. I am because you know, the only thing I knew about entrepreneurship is what people say, mm-hmm. which is it's really hard. Right. <laughs> That's like, you know, the stats are still the same. It's still nine out of 10 companies five years after formation in the US don't exist. Yeah. And so I kind of figured if, if I'm going to, put my reputation and sleep and equity and relationships into starting a company. Why not work on companies that if we succeed, the, the language I used then was, you know, we'd bend history in the right direction mm-hmm. because of the nature of the problem we chose to solve. It just, it just seemed pointless to do anything other than that. If it's right. going to be hard, why not work on things that are meaningful was, you know, the simple way of putting it. And, and that, that became an obsession. Because I realized that you could use this thing that's an agnostic tool, right? Business, I am, and you could use it uh, for the benefit uh, of people on the planet. Um, yeah. And I, I even remember seeing a poster when I was nineteen, and it said like, "Profit, people, planet." And I was like, "Oh my God, you could do all of those <laughs> things!" You know, like um, because because how business was being taught, and I think still is being taught, is shareholder value in a near term short-sighted type of way, which is just maximize returns and value for shareholders um, versus what business is fundamentally about, which is about solving problems. And it's just a tool. Same yeah. thing. Policy is about solving problems as well, right? We, we need them all. But I would say, you know, the belief that we have on a reasonable, my bias belief is that for better or worse, and it could be for worse, but business and capital markets are the most powerful tool of our time. Yeah. And so the question is, you know, a hammer is a tool. It could be used to build a house or destroy a home. Like how do we use capitalism, the most powerful tool in our tool belt to, yeah, to to create a regenerative and equitable future that we all want to be a part of. And and that's, that's kind of what catapulted me a lot. I'm using more eloquent words than I used to use, right. Because I've had so much time to reflect on it, but I I did end up launching three, three startups at university and we were trying to solve problems, I would say, that were typically delegated to the nonprofit world or the social sector, um, but with for-profit business models. Um, 
and, and that, that 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 was that was the beginning of uh, of uh, of this journey that eventually led to unreasonable. That's incredible. Listening to you, you sound like uh like so. Uh, what came up for me is like a combination of uh, philosopher and entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. maybe that's a new term we should coin right now: philosopherpreneur. And- <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it sounds silly. You know, yeah. you cannot take this shit too seriously. That's exactly. awesome. I'm with you. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you can add a philosopherpreneur division to unreasonable. You know, like. <laughs> That's no, it, it, it's, it's great because like, um, you know, one of the reasons I love being an entrepreneur and being around entrepreneurs is you think differently, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you think outside of the box and most entrepreneurs are continually trying to expand their, 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 their boxes or their paradigms, you know? Yeah. And, um, it sounds like you were just a natural from the very beginning, you know, when you started this, which is pretty amazing. Um, so in between the time of university and and then starting unreasonable, yeah. um, did you start other companies too? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the first company was it was was honestly it was it was kind of by accident if if okay. if I'm honest. Uh, so first one was uh, I went to the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was an out of state student. Um, mm-hmm. The difference between out of state and in state tuition is about thirty thousand dollars a year. Okay. Um, so the only reason I came here as I knew I could get in-state tuition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when, it, when I, I was thrown out by a program who was kind of trying to re- recruit me to, to come out here, um, and um, I walked into the, the bursar's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is before I decided where I was going to university. I walked in and I said, hey, you know, half, half of your students out of state tuition in-state tuition is way more affordable. How do you get in-state tuition as an out-of-state student? And they said, oh, well, less than 2% of students ever get in-state tuition. And I said, well, but then there is a way, 2% get it. (laughs) So how do you do it? And they said, well, it's really hard and confusing, but here's the packet. And it was confusing. It wasn't that it was hard, but it was confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was intentionally confusing because the university, unfortunately, loses a lot of money if you pay in-state tuition versus out-of-state tuition. And there's not much public funding here um, for um, public universities. Um, So I read through the packet, though, and realized all I needed to do was prove emancipation and domicile. Emancipation is financial independence from your, um, from your, uh, not necessarily parents, but I, I just forgot what it's called. You're not guardians. But anyway, we'll call parents. Yeah. 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 So financial uh, uh, independence and the domicile was intent to live in Colorado, which is really easy because I love Colorado. But that means register to vote here, get your driver's license, have your mailing address, file your taxes, so on. I am, and a year later, I got in-state tuition. Um, and it really wasn't that difficult. It was just confusing. And I, I remember sitting in the dorms with a couple of my friends and we were celebrating because I'd got an in-state tuition, drink some beer. And I, my three friends were out-of-state students um, and they're all paying out-of-state tuition. And they were like, golly, I can't believe you got in-state. You know, you're, you're so lucky or you're so smart or whatever that was. And I said, yo, like, it's not that hard. You just have to do emancipation, the domicile. And, and they're like, no, it's like, it's just, you know, nobody ever gets it. And I, uh, then I realized, hang on, <laughs> this is a good idea. It's like, maybe how about I help you get in-state tuition. And once oh, you get it, nice. you just pay me 10% of the Delta of what you save. And don't pay me anything unless I get it from your friends. Like, yeah. and, but I'm sure I can get it. Um, and immediately that became a business, um, wow. but it wasn't, it wouldn't have become a business unless, unless I could find more meaning in it. Cause I was like, ah, it's great to save my friends a lot of money. That is a lot of meaning, especially when you're taking out loans and 
you know, you become broke and you get tied into the system and all those other type of stuff. And, mm-hmm. but I wanted to go bigger. And, and the realization was, you know, we, we could strive to make higher education more accessible and affordable. I am, and that became a mission worth caring about. And so the, the company was called tuition specialists. I am, and that's nice. exactly what, what we did. Um, it was, uh, you know, I started with a couple friends. I am, we, we were all like, I was 19, they were 19 and 20. I am, and we, you know, one of the first things we did is we said, Where, where's the highest per capita out of state um, student population in campus? And I am at that time, because, you know, we were young college students. It's great. It was sorority houses um, were the largest out of state. And so we went in and we started recruiting through there and the dads loved us and so on and so forth. But I am, I realized about a year into it that there was a loser in the model and I did not want to have a company that had any negative impact on a stakeholder. That would like, if you think about a tree, right. Mm -hmm. In the, in the force, everything benefits because it exists and that's why it thrives. It's not sustainable. It's actually thrivable because Mm -hmm. everything benefits. I am. And there was a loser. It was the university. Right. And so a year into running the company, I went back into the bursar's office and I'm, I'm still a student, of course. And I, I sat down with the head of that office I am, and I said, look, this is what we're doing. Um, and we're saving these students a lot of money and their families a lot of money, which is great, but um, it's hurting you, the university. And you know, the guy at the time, I don't remember his name, but he looked at me and he's like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> he's like, I'm excited for you. This is a great idea. Uh-huh. Like, you don't need to tell me this. And I said, no. I'm not going to do it unless we find a way for it to benefit the university. I don't want this to be negative. And we thought about it and, you know, it'd be competitive kind of in any way. And what we realized is the University of Colorado struggled to bring an out-of-state talent and out-of-state diversity. And what, what I mean by that is if you're really smart, you're going to pay thirty or $40,000 a year, you're going to go to Stanford, right? Okay. Uh, and and because it was so expensive, the University of Colorado did not go into inner city urban environments and recruit students because they knew that the affordability just wasn't there. And so what happened is we became what would have been comp- uh, you know, competitors with the university. Mm-hmm. We became partners with the university. We became a recruitment arm for them to get talent and diversity into the University of Colorado that could have normally got here. And wow. we thrived like a treat, right? And so it was now it was not just make higher you know higher education more affordable and accessible it was actually partner with the institutions that should have been getting hurt by what we were doing and actually become you know real partners and collaborators and i think that yeah it taught me something that we really believe we the team and community at unreasonable which is yeah the business world like thank god i dropped out of (laughs) business school because all of the conversations conversation there is what is your competitive advantage right yeah. everybody talks about it yeah and i i just i don't even understand that question if, yeah. if if i'm candid i think that the businesses of the 21st century that really thrive they're not going to focus on competitive advantage they're going to focus on collaborative advantage yeah and the way you get rich collaborations is you put everything on the table you're vulnerable you're authentic and you say hang on is there an opportunity where one plus one equals three or four or five instead yeah. of one plus one equals 1.5 or maybe two in the normal business sense if you're really lucky right yeah. and, I, and i think that's that's the goal and and as entrepreneurs and you know leaders i think it's also on us to constantly not just look at the positive of what we're doing but to look at the negative externalities and say is there a way if i go in and i sit and i listen with you know whoever's being impacted in a negative way or mm-hmm. it could be the environment it could be people I am, if I really listen to them and I really care, 
um, then I can probably solve for that as well. But I think that so much, even in the world that we operate in, you know, social business or impactful companies, um, so much of it is just talking about the positive side. But if you really want to thrive, I think we need to also focus on those that are those you know, different elements that are potentially getting negatively impacted and turn them into collaborators by positively impacting them. And that was just my first real felt example of that. that. It, it, yeah. was, it was awesome. Yeah, if I can interject right here, um, yeah. I, I, I want to ask you about, um, you know, kind of where you got that idea of creating a win-win-win situation for everybody, because I was taught that at a personal growth seminar when I was 26, mm. and it really changed my perspective on yeah. how I, I, I look at things and how I operate, and I've, mm -hmm. you know, stayed true to that for a long time, but it's not always easy, and like, I'll give you an example. Um, I used to do, I used to run a company called the entrepreneur house, which did yeah. business accelerators around the world. And when yeah. people would come and stay in the entrepreneur house for a month and we would set goals together and build business together and enjoy yeah. whatever city we were in. And I was doing one in Barcelona. And at the time, um, I would rent an apartment off of either a website or Airbnb. And then, um, technically according to Spanish law, you weren't allowed to uh, double lease it, right. To bring in yeah. more people and lease it again, which is what I was doing. Yeah. And then when the, so I rented this apartment for five months and then when it was, when the entrepreneur house wasn't happening, I then re-rented it on Airbnb. I was yeah. like, Oh, we can make extra cash here and just provide yeah. cash. So the company that rented it to me found out about it yeah. and they said, you have to come in right now. Uh, cause if not, we'll report you to the police and yeah. it could be serious stuff. And I was, I was shitting my pants, you know, I'm yeah. like, oh my God, like here I'm in Spain, you know, I'd been in Spain quite a while at that time, but I was like, I don't know what's going to happen. So anyway, I, I kind of made a case and I was like, I'm just going to be, you know, as authentic as possible. So I went in and the head of the real estate company, um, had me in for a chat and, oh. uh, the, 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 uh, assistant kind of treated me rude because of, you know, he was the one that found it on Airbnb and yeah. he was like, yeah, this guy's trying to rip us off or whatever and, or get us in trouble. And so I went in, I had the conversation. I told him, you know, here's, here's the deal. I run this business called the entrepreneur house. Um, when it's not operating, I just wanted to kind of make some extra cash flow and, mm. um, you know, to, to pay the rent. And that's what I was doing. And he goes, you know, I can get in like a lot of trouble, uh, if this comes back to my, me and you can get in serious trouble as well. And I go, yeah, but I didn't think the risk was, I knew at the time, but I didn't think the risk was actually realistic because yeah. Spain's a much different place than America. America yeah. would be very realistic, right? Uh, because most people are just like, yeah, it's okay. You know, everything's you know, under yeah. the table. And, uh, and so I just, he looked at my website and I told him everything that I was doing and he just loved the, the concept of what I was doing. Like mm. he loved the entrepreneur house and he's like, I'm an entrepreneur too. And I go, here's the deal. I think you came in here as my enemy, but I think we're yeah. going to leave as partners mm -hmm. and, and I've got some other apartments I want to rent and I want to partner up with you and rent some other apartments to you mm. and, and what you're doing with the entrepreneur house. And I was like flabbergasted, you know, I was like, yeah. Oh my God. So like you came in with this idea, you started a business, then realized there was a, somebody that wasn't benefiting yeah. and immediately kind of shifted over to that. And how, how could we include everybody, even at the risk of maybe shutting your company down? I would have shut it down. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have personally shut it down mm -hmm. if there was a, 
if if the 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 entity losing in our model continued to lose. Right. I just I refused to have. I did not want to have a company. I am where anybody was malaffected because of what I was putting into the world. Yeah. And so where did you get that mindset? Cause you were like 19, right? 20 yeah. maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Where yeah. did you pick that up at, at such a young age? Probably philosophy. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't have a good answer. I am, but I, I, I was so steeped <laughs> in philosophy. I mean, you know, and I, I got reminded um, a year ago, uh, by one of my friends and his colleague, um, Will Butler, uh, on our team at Reasonable, um, we were on a bike ride mm-hmm. and we were talking about philosophy and how it informs you know, the decisions that we're making as, as a business and the policies that we have. And so on. And he said, you know, he's like, I am, he's like, you, you read Wealth of Nations, you know, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. Mm-hmm. People say godfather of capitalist, modern capitalist market theory. So yeah, of course. He goes, but did you read his first seminal thesis or treaty? Um, and, and I had it and, and I had forgotten that Adam Smith wrote two, two really seminal pieces. The one that everybody talks about is the wealth of nations, mm-hmm. which laid the foundations for capitalism and market competition. Uh, the first one that he wrote, it's called the theory on moral sentiments okay. and wealth of nations came out of a theory on moral sentiments, his system of capitalism that like philosophically he had you know, arrived at was because he was trying to figure out how do you create the most morally just society possible. Mm-hmm. And what happened is we forgot, like business forgot that actually the intention of business was morality. Mm-hmm. And instead we just thought it was to make money. And I think that's why we've gone so astray, which is why this tool that's so powerful can be so dangerous, yeah. right? But it can also, if we take it just back to its roots, like what I'm talking about, it's not my idea. It's actually like the very roots uh, of what we think of capitalist theory is that with Adam Smith, it started with morality. Yeah. And I am, and, and I, I'm just sitting like, let's bring it back to that because it's also more fun. It's more rewarding. Life is yes. better lived. Yeah. Right. And when you can, when you, when you, when you, when you're renting out that apartment, right, you probably have a little bit of mild, constant anxiety being like, Ooh, am I going to get caught? Am I going to get caught? Am I, yeah. you know, am I going to get in trouble? Is this going to hurt this person? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like that's there versus you sit down with that person, you understand where they're coming from, what their needs are. You find a way where you can actually collaborate on it. And then you feel so much better about yeah. it. <laughs> and so, yeah. Right. It's like, but, but it, I, I do think it takes, it probably, Nowadays, I would say it takes courage to look at something and be like, oh, this might not be good. Even though I've convinced myself this is majority good, this may not be good. That takes courage. When I was 19, I, um, that was just foolhardiness. It wasn't even courage, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if that makes any sense. I, um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, even with what we do with, with Unreasonable, which I believe in with my in like entire being and heart, like I, I also want my paradigm to shift and to be questioned. If, and if somebody ever comes to me and says, look, in your model, I am, there's a loser, whether it's a stakeholder yeah. or it's a systemic um, type of challenge, then, then I would immediately say, okay, well, hang on. We need to dig into that. We need to listen. We need to learn, develop empathy for that challenge and then, and then pivot because mm-hmm. we, don't, we don't want to operate it that way. I am, and I think that's very true of you know, the companies that we support in the fellowship. Like the intention we look for in all of the CEOs that we support is, you know, why did you start your company? Yeah. I am, and it, like, so how I would think about it is um, profit is not a bad thing. Profit is a tool. Yeah. Uh, it can be a very good thing. Profiteering, I think, is a bad thing. Can you large. define that? 
Yeah, profiteering is trying to maximize profits as much as possible, okay. getting rich as fast as you can. Okay. Right. I am, and whereas profit, profit is just a tool. I am, and so, so what we look for are CEOs who start companies to to solve these pressing global problems. This is the reason why they started it. Mm-hmm. If it just so happens to turn into a multi-billion-dollar company, that's phenomenal mm-hmm. because that speaks to the the level and kind of breadth of value that they're creating in the world. But the reason they started it is to solve a problem or at least put a dent on it um, at a global scale. And so we always we really want to look at that intention because if if you have that intention, then as you uncover further truths in your work. You're yeah. going to pivot accordingly versus just trying to blaze through those things and just generate profit. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I guess like like if you if there's a company in with unreasonable, yeah. and and you find somebody that's uh, not winning, you know that the, there's a lose factor in the design of the business model in the company. Um, what if what happens if you know, the only thing to do is shut the company down to, yeah, to make it win for everybody. Yeah. yeah. So, so then I think because of the, the nature of the um, personalities that, that we align with in the fellowship, the CEOs, mm-hmm. they, they, if, if they couldn't figure it out, they would. That hasn't happened um, largely because we're working with later stage companies that have already figured out a lot of that stuff, right? Okay. So we, we support growth stage companies. On average, they're seven years into the life cycle of the company. Um, you know, they've raised or made about 50 million by, by the point in time when we induct them into the fellowship. And our, our whole thing is, okay, you are, you know, you're bringing clean drinking water to 2 million people. It is you know, financially profitable and sustainable. And it's, it, it has you know, real efficacy. Um, in terms of the impact on the ground. Our question then is how do we help you go from 2 million to 200 million people faster? Um, And so because we are, you know, we're cheating. You cannot apply to become uh, a part of the Unreasonable Fellowship. We do a lot of primary research. We handpick, we privately invite. Mm. We then cover their costs for life and we support them um, into perpetuity. Um, But because because we're coming in at a later stage in development, you know, a lot a lot of those challenges have typically been been worked out. Um, yeah. I will say we we don't have our companies right now report on um we could say unintended externalities, and and that's something I really want us to be able to do. Um, it's hard enough just to measure the efficacy of you know impact on the ground, whether uh-huh. that's carbon reduction or people impact or whatever that might be. Um, but I I think we need to systematize. Uh, um, measurements around unintended negative consequences. Um, so then we can also um, help the companies, um, you know, work through solving those. Um, but we don't yet do that. I think it's worth dissecting um, yeah. kind of the mentality or challenge around those entrepreneurs out there that might realize there's a lose uh, in the factor and in, in, you know, one of the yeah. factors of their company and the resistance around it. So what comes mm. to my mind is, is the, the, the education or the way they they've been brought up as an entrepreneur yeah. the thinking, you know, profiteering, as you mentioned, yeah. profit first, focus on that, continue to grow the company. The other thing is probably something not talked about as much is 
one, one, the hard work it takes in building a business and getting to the point when you're making decent money and how hard it would be for a person (laughs) to to say, there's one little thing over here Mm. losing, you know, I've spent the past 10 years building this business. I'm just going to sweep that one under the rug and because I'm providing for a family now, you know, I put my lifeblood into this. So, so what would you say? to, to the entrepreneurs out there Great that question. Are, are seeing that in their, their lives and their businesses. And, and even scarier than that, you're providing for your family. All of your employees True. are relying on you for providing yeah. for their families. Yeah. That's right? a lot of pressure too. Yeah. Let alone your partners or your clients or your customers who hopefully you're benefiting in a really significant way. Yeah. So it's, it's really easy to look at the positives and have those be justification for just masking whatever <laughs> negative potential is there, right? right it's right. really easy. It's what, I mean, it's what almost everybody does. And it makes sense why, why as humans, we would do that, yeah. especially if you also put 10 years of your life into building this thing, yeah. right? Um, you've invested not just money and time, but heart and soul yeah. um, and relationships, right? And reputation in such a significant way. Um, so yeah, I, I fully acknowledge it's going to be really hard to do. Mm-hmm. I, I think you have to want to do it I am to, and, and actually have to believe um, that I am, you want to use you know, business I, as an intentional tool mm-hmm. um, to benefit I, yeah, as, as much as humanly like possible. You have to really want to believe that. If you do, it's then really easy. Um, cause you go in and, and you can look at your system and be like, Oh, this person might be losing, um, or this stakeholder might be affected or the environment over here might be hurting. And then, and then you just go in curious and, and you develop empathy for the challenge. And what's so great is if you successfully created a company over the last 10 years, you are probably creative as all sin. <laughs> and sure. so yeah. this is, this is the, you know, the posture of, the, of, of an entrepreneur. Why I love entrepreneurs so much is we all have curiously warped perspectives on reality, right? Where most of the world sees a market failure, a great entrepreneur looks at the exact same thing and sees a market opportunity. Mm. So what I would challenge entrepreneurs who are like, oh, maybe I don't want to go in and investigate um, that negative externality or negative consequence or impact that I'm having. Put your entrepreneurial hat on that made you so successful in the first place. Go and listen, learn, develop empathy for the challenge, and then you will figure it out. Like yeah. If you have the will, you'll figure it out. And, and on the other side of that, you'll do so much better. Like if we just learn from the natural world, which has been here way longer than us, and if you just look at something like a tree, everything benefits because of its existence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it is an alchemist um, of anything that could be wasted and turns it into value for an entire ecosystem. If you can do that with your business, you will not just be sustainable, you will be thriving. Yeah. And you will outperform the market in the long term and you will create mm-hmm. way more value, but also you'll sleep better and your employees will sleep better and their spouses are going to feel better about what they're doing and their kids are going to feel better. You know, and so it's, it's like, um, instead of looking at, instead of separating things, it's like, how do we bring them into harmony? I am, and it takes courage, but it took courage to be an entrepreneur in the first place. So I would just say, apply that same courage, I am, you know, to the challenge and acknowledge it's going to be really uncomfortable. Yeah. It's going to be really hard because you will, if you go out and you talk to the people who you think you're negatively impacting and you genuinely ask them, they're going to tell you, and it's going to probably hurt like shit because <laughs> you have convinced yourself that yeah. this is only good. Right. Um, but we can always make it better. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think it just takes, um, 
it does take some courage to kind of look look in the mirror. Um, yeah. But it's doing the same thing I've always done: turn a problem into an opportunity. I like that. I like that. Um, let's talk more about Unreasonable Group. Yeah, it's a, an amazing organization, and and I was reading more about it and getting to know all the things that you've done with the community. Um, where did the idea come from? Yeah. Actually, when did you when did you start Unreasonable? Well, that was, that was really the third the third company in university okay. really became un, became unreasonable it wasn't oh, really? wasn't intended right. to be um, yeah. so i had i the uh, making higher education more affordable with tuition mm-hmm. specialists we had a company we called um sway sports which was um trying to use ecotourism as a tool for international development and conservation around the world it's a software platform for for guides around the world mm-hmm. i and when i was you know launching and running those two companies i felt lonely <laughs> And this is the genesis of unreasonable, pure yeah. loneliness. It was total, it was very selfish yes. um, in terms of starting unreasonable. And I think you can resonate with this. I'm, I'm, because I didn't know who to hang out with. Yeah. I would go to the, I'd go to the nonprofit community because we cared about the same problems. Like these are my people. I am, or, you know, the public sector. It's like, these are my people. And I realized, damn it. I, I'm, I'm a misfit. Um, yeah. I'm aligned on, on the desire to solve problems, but I'm a misfit because I am, I, I am a capitalist yeah. and, and not, I would say not, not in heart, but in mind. I am. And what I mean, what I mean by that is what we've been talking about, which is I think profits are most powerful tool. I am and for innovation and ingenuity and markets for scale, mm-hmm. unless you're going to go policy, which I had no interest in doing. Um, and so I was a total misfit in that world for that reason. So I went to the private sector, which in Boulder, Colorado is mostly um, software and kind of tech startups and mm-hmm. it's a great community. And I was, I was more of a misfit. Because um, I, I don't care about profit in and of itself. I see it as as a tool to be levered to create change at scale. Um, but it's not an end. It's just a means to an end, which is that change and that okay. impact. And so um, I felt like a misfit between both these worlds. I used to journal about it all the time and talk about it all the time. And, and I realized I had a significant desire to seek refuge amongst fellow misfits. I was lonely. I wanted a community of entrepreneurs who spoke the same language and had the same posture towards entrepreneuring, um, which was, you know, we were, I would say, foolhardy and hell-bent, uh, or foolhardy enough to believe we could, quote-unquote, change the world. And I really do put that in quotes, right? But have a has really significant measurable impact on society and the planet. Yeah. Um, but we're so hell-bent and so determined that they wouldn't stop unless they did that. And I just didn't have a community of entrepreneurs. I couldn't find one that existed for, for these reasons. If it had existed, I would have snuck into that community and joined it. I would not have, had, I would have not wanted to build it, right? Yeah. I had no interest in building it, but, but I had to. I am, and so in a sense, um, you know, with Unreasonable, um, the reason I think it resonates with me so sincerely is, is I am my own customer, right? Mm-hmm. I built it to be a part of it. Yeah. Um, it's why we are a very weird organization. It's hard to put us in a box. People yeah. ask us, what do we do? It's like, yeah, okay, we, we have an investment house. You know, we have a media side. We have a fellowship. We have a mentorship program. We have these partnerships with multinationals. We do blah, blah, blah. But what we, act, what we really do is build community. Yeah. That's what we really do. And that's because the genesis of Unreasonable was a desire to seek refuge in a community, right? Who spoke the same language and had the same aspirations and were struggling with the same difficulties. I am, and I am, that was really the start. And so I didn't even want to, re- I didn't want a reasonable to be a company. Mm-hmm. I just saw it as a project to build a community. What, what happened was it was two years into running it. And it wasn't it was the first program we ran. I was still a student. Mm-hmm. We, we called it the global leadership Institute. Um, it sounded really, um, 
credible. Yes. <laughs> so, so, you know, Chris, if you got an email at that, that point in time from the Global Leadership Institute, you'd be like, wow, they want to be a part of this? when you're in college, too. <laughs> yeah. You're like, oh, this is impressive. This, this, this is legit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so in our pilot program, I think we had uh, uh, 22 entrepreneurs, 18 nationalities came out to Boulder. We lived together in the same house for 10 weeks. Nice. I am, and what we were doing then was they were entrepreneurs who were similar to me. We were early stage. Yeah. And, and we all, the, the, you know, the mandate was come out here. You're, you're already working on a company, but let's figure out how you can, you know, find it in a financially profitable way, impact at least a million lives in a measurably significant way. I am, and by impact, like future of healthcare, education, financial inclusion, you know, maternal health, like, like real, meaningful i would say really meaningful societal impact i am and i um you know ran so we ran that the first year in 2008 i am there's a whole failure story in there where basically someone i was running that with and ended up suing me and the other person who i was running it with tried to sue they didn't actually sue mm -hmm. but um i was still in university it was disheartening kind of closed it down um, and then I realized that actually this was just a monumental learning opportunity that, that we, we could do something more significant with this. That became Unreasonable Institute. Uh, and we, landed, we ran our first program in 2010. Um, similar, I, I think we had 18 different nationalities. We lived together, same thing, house for 10 mm -hmm. weeks. Wow. Um, and uh, two years into running the Unreasonable Institute, I actually had the intention of not running it. I was like, I'm going to found it. I want it to exist. But I, it, was, it felt too um, uh, removed from okay. impact. Uh, it was too meta. Like, I didn't want to be an organization that helped entrepreneurs on the front lines. I wanted to be an entrepreneur on the front lines who got help, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I was running other companies at the same time. And, I can understand that for sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it took me a while to swallow my ego. Um, two years into running a reasonable institute, I realized um, I got addicted to leverage, not, not in the financial sense, but in the impact sense, right? right? I, I could start, let, let's say I got really lucky and was um, I, you know, really successful on maybe two companies that I founded in my entrepreneurial career. Well, maybe I would impact 10, 20 million lives in a measurably significant way. Mm -hmm. so, or we could strive to be the most effective organization in the world at helping those who already have the solutions on the ground, on the front lines. Um, and I just realized that in doing so, we could impact billions of lives in a measurably significant way. And so it took me a while to um, yeah, swallow my pride I am, and stop everything else I was doing and just focus on unreasonable. I am, and and th that's when I got addicted, <laughs> is what I would say, and like completely obsessed. Um, and the irony of the whole thing is, is I I likely would not qualify for our fellowship. I would not get in to uh, you know the community that I built because I wanted to be a part of it at this stage um, because the caliber of uh, yeah individuals and companies that we work with is it's mind blowing. It feels yeah. like science fiction, but it's nonfiction. You know yeah. what what these what these different companies are doing around the world, and so it's it's kind of the greatest privilege imaginable. I am you know to be able to support the you know, deeply courageous and damned important work of of the companies that that are in the fellowship. Yeah, I, I I love that, and I can relate too because you know I've created events and a community too where the members of the community far outpace. And my knowledge as an entrepreneur and experience and, and, you know, success as an entrepreneur too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I guess, you know, you, I guess if you look at that, you're kind of like, I wonder if you've ever handled or, or thought of this. Like, if you look at it, you're kind of like, 
you know, do you ever have any like, um, uh, what's the word, uh, imposter syndrome? You're like, how am yeah. I the person that gets to organize all these amazing companies uh, in one place? And you're like, yeah. you know, it kind of comes up for me from time to time. And it's, it's like, am yeah. I really qualified to, to organize all these people mm. and do this stuff with mm -hmm. them? And, and, yeah. but at the same time, like I'm extremely passionate about it and I'm not going to totally. stop, you know? Yeah. I, you know, I, it's so interesting. I never had imposter syndrome when it came to bringing together the community. Cause I just, yeah. it just, it was, it just felt so needed yeah. in the world. There was, and especially at the stage that we work at with these growth stage companies, there's, there's such a dearth of support yeah. for the companies and the markets that we, that we operate within. There's a lot of financial support. There's a lot of investment. A lot of the companies are you know, significantly oversubscribed and raising capital, but when it comes to real support, in terms of what it means to be a CEO of a rapid growth company trying to you know, solve a, like a very pressing societal and environmental problem in the world, like th there's, there's very little of it. I am, and so for me, I, am, I didn't have it there. I would say where I've struggled with imposter syndrome because I have I am, and still do is I am just questioning, like, are, are we getting it all right or not? Mm. You know, and it's what I, what I struggle with imposter syndrome is like your introduction, like, top you know I, I get this email from fortune they're like you're one of the 50 greatest leaders on the planet and i was like that is that is such that is so not true like that is so like yeah it's just not true right yeah. um and and then when someone imposter syndrome comes up it's like well actually no hey y'all like i'm struggling like yeah. um i love what i do i believe yeah. in it like I am, but um, this isn't easy. And, 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 you know, the truth is it's not easy for anybody, but I do not think I've earned that title anywhere close to it. You know, like maybe I'll spend the rest of my life trying to earn it. And, and the only way I'm going to like eventually get there is because of the greatness of the entrepreneurs that we actually support. It has nothing to do with, with myself and the team, right. Yeah. That we have. I am, but I, so that, that I, I think, I used to get on stage and say entrepreneurship is the answer to every problem. And I started to feel like an imposter because mm -hmm. I was like, is that true? Like, is that really true? And, and I don't think that's really true. Yeah. I think that I am um, capitalism is what's like, is the tail that wags the dog for better or worse. And I would potentially say for worse, right? Like policy is dictated by the markets I am, and, and, and by private sector interests. It just is, right? And so if it is that powerful, then how do we use that for good? I am, and, and you know, that's really kind of the push. But I'm, when I go back and I, and I like read some of the stuff I wrote, I'm, I just realized that I, I, wasn't, I wasn't nuanced enough about it. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, and when you say business is the answer, and it's like entrepreneurship will solve every problem. Like we're forgetting about the noble work of the social sector. We're forgetting about the actual power of government and democracy and policy. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and, and this gets back to the whole thing. It's like, it's not competitive. Like uh, it needs to be collaborative. It needs to be like pathologically collaborative to, use, to misuse a word. Uh, but, you know, but I think the only thing we should be competitive on is not which framework is ideal and so on. It's the only thing we should be competitive about is the problem itself, uh -huh. right? We need to compete against the climate crisis. Right. And if we don't win this competition, we're toast, yeah. right? I mean, I've, I've been bolder. We, a thousand houses just burned, not in the mountains, yeah. like in the suburbs yeah. last week, right? Yeah. Because of, because it's, it's been the driest, it's been the driest season on, on history on record. It's, you know, it's, gonna be, it's, it's, it's nuts. The first snow, the first actual snow here was three days ago. 
Like wow. that, that has never, wow. never happened in wow. Boulder. Um, and then we had 110 mile per hour winds. That's mm -hmm. hurricane force winds. That doesn't, right? And and this we're, this is our new normal. It's just the beginning of it. And so I would just say, um, in terms of imposter syndrome, I'm, when I got too dogmatic in believing that business is the answer, mm. I think it is a critical, astronomically critical part of the answer, right. but it's not the answer. It's more nuanced than that. It takes an ecosystem. It takes all of us. Right. Yeah. I am. And, and I think that's where I've, you know, felt a little bit like an imposter. Um, maybe I'll add one more thing, Chris, yeah. just to be if yeah. like just more vulnerable with it too, is I am, yeah, there's there's this whole fake it till you make it type of mentality, especially I am, you know, I, I think kind of white male out of Silicon Valley type of mentality entrepreneurship, which took over the world, right? Uh -huh. Which took over the world. I yeah. am, and and that was this fake it till you make it type of thing. And I am I definitely I, I remember I gave a talk at something called the Do Lectures, which is an amazing. Um, like really intimate gathering. Um, and I gave a talk about what we were doing at Unreasonable. And I never rewatch my talks. I don't, I don't listen to the podcast. I, I find myself boring uh, in a way. Um, but I rewatched this talk because a friend watched it and said, hey, I don't know if everything you said is accurate. I am, and I went back and I rewatched the talk and I realized that I, I was inflating reality, mm. right? I was, I was stretching the truth I am um, because I had so much clarity around where how I convinced myself. I knew where we were going. It was yeah. so clear to me that it was almost real, right? I am, um, but but it, but I was telling a lie, right? By saying we've done this. No, we haven't done this. We may hopefully will do this in yeah. five months, yeah. <laughs> right? And I think so many entrepreneurs are guilty of that, and and it's it's un, it's an unfortunate byproduct kind of of the culture of entrepreneuring because I think that you can have. Um, you, you can have confidence um, and humility at the same time. Yeah. And um, I think that um, it's really easy to conflate confidence and arrogance, but arrogance is just a masquerade for insecurity, yeah. right? Like the, the real goal is like confidence and conviction in like the why around what you're doing and the belief that you can do it. Then the humility to admit we may not have all the answers yeah. and we haven't done it yet, yeah. right? But here's why we believe we can finally get there. And I think that's where I am... Uh, I struggled a lot and it, and it took my, my now fiance, um, you know, who lived with me, who also saw what I was saying to be like, hang on, like, what are you doing that for? Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, it's an insecurity. Yeah. Like, that's why I'm puffing my chest up. Yeah. It's, it's, it's total insecurity and I just need to get more comfortable yeah. uh, with humility. I am, and I, and I, I think humility is one of the greatest assets of leaders anywhere. Great parents, great, you know, Kind of the whole thing, but uh, it took a while for me to lean into that. Yeah, it does, and I think maybe that's worth dissecting as well. But I wanted to point one thing out: is yeah. is the the fault in the mindset that um, a person thinks their way is the only way, and there's no other ways. Like the mm. which again leads into a bit of arrogance, and then um, you know is surrounded by the insecurity of being wrong. Exactly, um, and yeah, well the, put. Yeah, and then the fight to like if they work on that 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 mission or that idea for so many years then the resistance to accept totally. that they're wrong years down realizing their life's work was wasn't was incorrect in some way which is challenging so totally. you know as and i love yeah. how you you were addressing this because 
you're being really vulnerable about your own challenges going through this because we mm. all go through this. We don't want to, be, especially if you're doing a presentation in front of a bunch of people, you totally. don't, you don't want to want look dumb and you want to <laughs> look like, you know what you're talking about, but also you don't want to state incorrect facts because that can come back to haunt you hundred percent at the same time. So maybe, maybe some ways the listeners or people that are going see that in their own lives, how they can check into it. Um, and, and realize that, yeah. oh, I'm kind of going in the wrong direction because I'm, I'm focusing on my own ideas that I believe are the correct ideas and, and the way yeah. to do this thing. But also, am I accepting raw feedback of people telling them I'm hundred percent. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, I think this kind of gets back to that other thing is like, you have, you have to want to grow. Uh, in that direction. And the best way I, I, I've done it is I've given people permission. So especially my teammates, I say, hey, y'all, if you ever feel like I'm being hyperbolic about what mm -hmm. I'm saying, like, if especially factually hyperbolic, you call me out. Like, nice. not only do I give you permission, I see it as your job because I struggle with this. I have a problem with it. You know, yeah. th th this, this is me kind of going back maybe five years or so. I've actually, because I've asked for so much help on it, I, now I'm probably a little bit like militant about it sometimes. Okay. I am maybe too hard. I am on it, but I'm, I, I think that it's a beautiful act as a leader to go to your team and say, Hey, y'all, like I am like all of us, I have a growth edge. Mm -hmm. I am. And I'm going to actually ask for your help on it. I am. Now that takes a mindset that vulnerability is strength. Right. I am. And, and I've all, like almost always my whole life for whatever reason, I've believed that I am. Yeah. I remember when Brene Brown gave that talk and it was an ama it's an amazing talk. But I remember the first time I watched that talk, I did think to myself, like, doesn't everybody think that? Like, why is this a big deal? And, and, and so, I learned no. <laughs> so what is, what is Brene Brown's talk? So um, it's basically that like vulnerability is a strength. It's a courageous act that comes from a place of, of comfort and confidence versus I am um, the, the opposite of that I'd say is like arrogance, which a lot of people think is confidence, but it's really insecurity masked as confidence, right? right. I am, and so, so I've seen though, I am, you know, I, a lot of people say being a CEO is the loneliest job in the world. Um, that's a really common thing. I think for a lot of CEOs, it is. The reason is it's, it's a choice that you make as a leader. The reason it's so lonely is because you're not allowing yourself to be vulnerable with people around you yeah. because you're, you're scared of what, what's going to happen there. So if, if there is a growth edge, right, uh, that you have, and in this case, mine was accuracy, <laughs> to put it simply, right? Uh, to go to the team and give them permission to call you out. Yeah. Go to your friends, give them permission to call you out. Go to your life partner, your spouse, give them permission to call you out. And what's so amazing is when, when, when you're the one who says, hey, you know, I have a growth edge here. I really need some help. I want to be real with you. Can you call me out? On, you know, on this when it happens, then when they do, you're so receptive to it. You're not defensive because you actually asked for it too. And so I would just, you know, but what that takes is self-awareness, yeah. right? I am, and it does, it's this, you know, the aware, like we were talking about the awareness of your company's impact on the world. Yeah. I am, this is kind of the same thing. It takes courage to look kind of and be like, Ooh, hang on. Maybe this isn't as good as I thought it was. Yeah. Same thing with, with self-work. I am, but how much more fun is the world, you know, and is living when we realize we can constantly have a growth edge, right? Um, and we can ask for support on developing that. And what's so cool is if, if you're an entrepreneur or a CEO or a leader in any capacity, yeah, uh, even, even if you're coaching like a little league soccer team, like if you went to those kids and say, hey, y'all, I'm like, yeah, I'm your coach, but I'm struggling with this. 
y'all can help me with this. Think about how empowering that is for the team. And then they start to do that in their lives as well. And so I think the ripple effects are really beautiful, but it does take um, vulnerability and vulnerability takes confidence. And and that comes from introspection. Yeah. What's your process if like somebody does call you out and you notice resistance around it as opposed to like, you know, like maybe you're, you're experienced enough with it where anybody like calls you out on something, you're open to it. But maybe in the earlier days, like somebody said, Daniel, like, you know, this isn't look like this or this isn't factual. Um, Have you ever noticed like some resistance coming up to you, like defensiveness and how you processed that? I, um, so this gets back to, I studied philosophy right? and in philosophy, what I felt all the time was that I was, you were wrong on everything. It's like, you, you thought you believed this, right. you thought you believed this, but if you believe this, you can't believe this. Therefore you don't actually, you have an inconsistency. Right. Um, right. and, and so I think I got trained to, um, have my paradigms challenged and shifted and I got it addicted to how good that felt. And so I'm probably uniquely receptive I am to it because of how I was trained versus getting trained in a discipline where there's a right and a wrong, right? I am, and you strive to be right. I am, and that's just, that just wasn't the case in terms of how, how um, I, I, you know, I, I went through education. Um, but I, let me try to think about, I, I, I don't, the only person I get defensive with personally is, is my fiance. Um, yeah. When I feel, I feel that because I'm like, hang on, no, you know me better than anybody. Like, and, and you're questioning my integrity on something, whatever that is like, ah, right. There's like this like real insecurity. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I, I could feel it in my chest and, and I'll listen to that. And, and I'll, you know, I'll even say, Hey, like, uh, you know, call it being triggered, right? Like, Hey, babe, like I'm, I feel a little bit triggered right now. I just need, I need a minute. <laughs> Let's talk about it. You know, whatever it is. Because, yeah, uh, is Brazilian and could be like hot on the attack, um, uh, which is great. She's a truth teller, like to to you know uh, to an extreme. Uh, I, when it, when it comes to family and friends and colleagues, I don't. I am. It never feels like a, a, a threat on my my worth. Yeah. I think that's why it would become challenging. But I do remember. I am. I used to expect teammates to believe. Um, wholeheartedly and with their entire mind that what we were doing was was absolutely right in terms of work. And, and, and I remember if teammates expressed doubts, I used to say, like, if, if you doubt this work, then why are you doing it? Like, yeah. leave. And that was so immature, <laughs> right? But that was my mentality. It was like, no, 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 we need to protect the sanctity of the mission of this work. Like, clearly, this matters. And if you don't believe in it, then you shouldn't be here because it's going to take a lot of belief to go through how difficult it's going to be to make this real. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that, that, that was a insecurity um, around uh, gets back to things like questioning the model that I dedicated so much of my life to now I'm so hungry for that. Now, if somebody has some doubt, I'm like, well, please tell me more. Right. Okay. Wow. You, you, you feel that if you were me, if you were the CEO of the company, what would you be doing differently? Yeah. to rectify that. Like, I am deeply curious, where does that come from? Right. And because that's just going to help inform, I uh, am making better decisions. I uh, am into the future, but, uh, but I used to be pretty defensive. I uh, am if teammates internally questioned, you know, what we were doing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a, a continual process of growth, right. Of understanding the whole thing is self. Yeah. 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 The, the whole thing is. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk, uh, dive more into unreasonable. Um, yeah. but this has been a great, 
great amount of wisdom that's been shared on your part. So I appreciate it, Daniel. Um, what's the, so what's the qualifications for, uh, a company to qualify for unreasonable now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's not, we don't have perfect qualifications. We, right. we, we acknowledge that there's you know, slight differences, but, um, what, what we would look for is we would say growth stage. So we're, we're trying to scale what works or is most likely to work. And so okay. an example of most likely to work would be like fusion energy, right? Um, that doesn't yet work. If we can figure out fusion, we recreate the sun in a steady state. You have unlimited you know, uh, energy for the world um, right. in, a, in a clean way. So that's like a, a thing we want to bet on and try to figure out. Um, and we would find, we would look at, you know, there's maybe a dozen private companies try to figure out fusion. We would then do a lot of research um, and try to find the one that we believe is most likely to succeed. And then we'd bring them into the fellowship. So they're not yet making revenue, right? As an example, <laughs> because it hasn't yet worked, but most of our companies are in market. Um, I, and what we're looking for is you have something that works. Its efficacy is proven. Um, your intention is to now scale it globally. I am, and uh, we want to help with that. So I am, that, that's typically the sweet spot for us. You know, as I mentioned earlier, average company is seven years. I am into yeah, having, having existed in market. I am, yeah. I am, and on average, they've raised um, or are generating about 50 million USD. I am, we, we look, we really look at the intention of the CEO. I am in, in terms of why they're running the company, how they're leading it. But we also look at the profit model itself. And we say, you know, is, is the DN, is the impact they want to have in the world baked into the DNA of the profit model? Mm -hmm. uh, if it's not fully baked, we won't work with it. Um, mm -hmm. And an example there would be, you know, there's great companies out there, but like one for one models, right? Buy something here and then it donates somewhere else. We, we wouldn't work for that. Okay. Uh, well, we wouldn't work with that because you can see a really simple future where uh, maybe they stop that donation because they found another mechanism for marketing to sell more of the shoes here, right? Whatever that is, or you know, whatever that one for one is. Um, what we would look for is the company that's making you know, shoes out of fermenting methane uh, that's being released into the atmosphere. Because mm, okay. um, then each shoe that they sh that they sell uh, is representative of captioned you know, captured pollution, right? right? I am, and it's also having the societal benefit of the jobs and so on and so forth. And so, yeah. but we okay. really want to look at the DNA of the profit model itself and ask, is the societal and environment and or environmental impact that they're pledging to want to have in the world baked into the model yeah. um, so that they're almost inextricably tied? Because we do, we want to work with companies. And I mean, I can give you some examples to make it more real. Um, but we want to work with companies that operate at the intersection of, yeah, likely becoming multi-billion dollar businesses, so future titans of industry, and they could win a Nobel Peace Prize. Yeah. That would be where we would want to play. I am, and, and so you know, the requirements for entry are the impact of the company that's baked into the profit model, but do we also believe that this can scale? Yeah. Like truly scale? Do we believe this can replace the incumbent status quo of technology or business model? Yeah. Um, and if the answer is yes on that, then you know, we'll look across energy and the environment, biodiversity, healthcare, education, zero waste supply chains, closed loop manufacturing, uh, you know, future of medicine, whatever that might be. But if the, if the answer is yes, we think that this can you know, win a Nobel Prize uh, and reach the scale of billions of dollars of value, which means yeah. more importantly, impacting ideally billions of lives, then uh, we want to work with them. I love that. Um, how many, so how many companies are part of the-, the Yeah, group? yeah, the stats were outdated. I okay. think it's 306 right now. Uh, I am, nice. uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. 
So I think like a lot of entrepreneurs out there like the idea of building a community of entrepreneurs, right? Um, the implementation is, is much different, right? It's a, you, you know, you started it when you were 22 or, or 20 yeah. in college still. Yeah. And then you spent 15 years or something yeah. like that, continuing to build it. Um, maybe if we could talk about the growth of unreasonable, like yeah, happy um, to. when you guys happy decided to. to create boundaries around, you know, the companies that you bring into it, because originally they were just it's startup companies that you guys were doing yeah. a 10 week apprenticeship. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So if we can go through that process a bit. Yeah. It changed when, when I, when I realized that this is the work that I, that I should be doing in it. And I began to feel that um, impatience is a virtue when it comes to solving these pressing global challenges. Yeah. Right. I am. And, and if that's true, if it, well, you need both impatience and patience, but yeah. if, um, impatience is a virtue, i.e. we need to solve these problems faster. Yeah. And that became really clear to me that um, instead of working with really early stage entrepreneurs, which is very noble and important work, yeah. I am, and taking seven years for them to then get into market to have something valid, let's just find the solutions that are already working and give them rocket fuel. That, that, was, that was the driving transformation. It was, how do we have more impact faster? It, yeah. what, one, of, one of the CEOs in the fellowship, um, her name is Jennifer Holgram, and uh, amazing company called Lonza Tech, multi-billion dollar company. They, they, they do, they ferment pollution, methane, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. They turn into ethanol, which can be made into sneakers, which they are mm -hmm. doing right now. Um, it can be made in jet fuel. Uh, United Airlines just flew their first commercial airliner in history, um, powered 100% on recycled carbon. Wow. 100% um, recycled pollution wow. was, was the jet fuel cool. uh, made by Lonza Tech. Um, so, anyways, so I remember talking to Jennifer and being like, you know, if we... If this really realizes its potential, each steel mill or oil refinery that she partners with, I am, it's the equivalent of taking 90,000 cars off the road every year. And she's wow. doing this now around the world, right? And these wow. are huge industrial scale projects. Yeah. And I said, yo, Jennifer, if we, can just have, if we can just do this faster, like this is serious in terms of impact on climate. Uh, and she looked at me and said, yeah, she goes, yeah, the technology is there, but winning slowly is the same thing as losing. Like we need to move fast mm. when it comes to being competitive on climate, on the climate crisis, right? I am, and and that that was that mentality. She said it better than I than I than I say it, but that's what drove Unreasonable to go towards growth stage companies to say, let's find the most effective solutions and scale what's working, because we need to do this faster and we need to do this, you know, yesterday. Right. I am I am is is uh is the feeling. I am, and so that was probably twenty twelve. I am um, is when I began to feel like, Hey, we need to move into growth stage companies that, that can create billions of dollars in market value because that speaks to the level of scale that they're operating at. And in 2013 ran the first program that was focused on, I uh, am working with companies that were established and helping them scale cross-continentally. I am. Um, so you know, realize that if you had a mobile healthcare application in Nigeria, and maybe you're bringing uh, healthcare access in, in a form to let's say 10 million Nigerians. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that, that mobile app is, is likely very applicable to other markets across the global South, but there's no precedent for scaling. Right? I, um, it's, hard, it's hard enough to scale an app out of Silicon Valley right. globally. Now imagine doing that as a Nigerian entrepreneur based in a Nigerian market when there is no precedent and there is no financing for that. And so that in 2013, we ran, um, we called it Unreasonable at Sea. This was, this was an experiment. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we had- Is this, you did this with Jeff Hoffman? 
Yes. That, yeah. 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 That's, that's yeah, right. exactly. Now right. I'm putting all the pieces. Of yeah. The when together. you mentioned his yeah. name, I was like, "Oh, Jeff. Yeah. 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 Jeff. Jeff's dear friend. Yeah. I am, and I am. We uh, ran a reasonable Etsy. We had 11 technology companies. Yeah. I am, and we were trying to help them scale, cross-continentally scale their impact into new markets. And what we believed is that I. When it comes to building companies, um, we, we have belief that empathy builds empires. Okay. Uh, what, what I mean by that is you have to have deep empathy for the uh, customers that you're serving and the problems that they're facing. Mm-hmm. I am, and so the only way to be, build real empathy is to actually go into market um, and sit with those people. Right. right? I am, and, 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 and listen, not just with your ears, but with your whole self. Yeah. Right. I am, and and I, so that, that was the first program that we ran where we were looking at more growth stage companies, trying to help them scale internationally. And I just realized that I, that's when I got addicted, um, that we could have so much of a profound impact um, by doing really simple work. You know, I, I like I have a, a friend a couple of years ago, I was trying to explain unreasonable, which is always hard to do. And mm-hmm. she, she said, you know, what you do reminds me of that quote that those who can't do teach. And, and I rebuttaled and I said, well, no, 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 actually, those who can't do or teach do what we do, <laughs> and, you know, because it's like we're, we're we have two jobs, right? Be masterful conveners, okay. find the most promising solutions on the planet to the world's hardest problems, and and bring them together in community with with uh, other individuals who can help scale those efforts. But the, so that's the first job is to convene. The second one is to create conditions mm-hmm. where you have these unlikely, uncommon. You know, productive collisions between people and ideas that would not have happened had you had not convened them and created those conditions. But that's that's all we do, right? It is it is humble and privileged work. Um, but if we do it well, the amount of impact it can have on the world is is really profound. Yeah. I am, and so that was why we switched to growth stage was just realizing it was so much more leveraged. I am and um, uh, expedited in terms of the helping play a role in the, in, you know, leading to the market shifts that we need to see. How long ago was that when you made the shift into growth stage? It was, it was really, it was 2013 was the first program. Okay. I am. And then and so that, that was unreasonable at sea. That was an experiment. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, we launched in partnership with Nike, we launched the girl effect accelerator. I, that was looking at growth stage market-based solutions that would benefit adolescent girls living in less than $3 a day. I am um, the, the belief Behind that is called the girl effect, and it's a belief that if you're going to have a chance in hell at putting a dent on poverty, um, you need to focus on adolescent girls. Yeah. And so that 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 was then the first program that we ran, and we were really grateful that Nike had the creative courage uh, to align with something called unreasonable around like business solutions to you know, benefit girls living in absolute poverty sounded insane. I am. And uh, you know the impact that's come out of that is really beautiful, and then that led to our our new model in essence. Yeah. Um, another question I have because we're we're running out of time, unfortunately, because yeah. I could talk for another hour and a half with you. I um, want your stories, Chris. But yeah, we can jam. <laughs> um, is is like so? If you're building a community, I think a lot of people struggle with with making it profitable, mm-hmm. and super and, hard. Yeah, sometimes it's really challenging. Sometimes, like people, Super hard. Uh, and I've even noticed this, have insecurities around um, charging their friends money. You 100%. know, and especially if you have a high ticket or or you want to take a person part of a person's business. Totally. Like there was a mindset that I grew up with, and I think yeah. a lot of people still have this: is you just help out a friend uh-huh. if a friend needs help, right? Absolutely. And you don't take money from them, or you know, or want to kick back from them or anything like. And so, 
Yeah. Um, when building, because you started out, you were lonely. You wanted to surround yourself with other like-minded people. Totally. I've done the exact same thing, right? Yeah. Um, that's why people join these organizations and uh -huh. and and want to be a part of them. Um, but then the entrepreneur and capitalist uh, mindset says, well, everybody's got to make money, and for an organization mm. to continue, it needs to make profit and growth, right? Mm. Mm. So um, uh, maybe we could talk about how unreasonable makes money, and yeah. then yeah, kind should. of your growth through that from in the very first days, like when you started this in college, was this a free thing or mm -hmm. were you charging people to come mm -hmm. and, and do the 10 week mm -hmm. program with you or how that Yeah. Worked? Great question. So I'm, we, we always had a really hard model, which is I refuse to charge the entrepreneurs. I am refused to, I felt like, I felt like there's a, you know, there's no dearth of great ideas in the world. There's millions of them. Everybody has them every day. There's, there's not even a dearth of capital. Like there's too much capital right now on the sidelines, but there, I think there is a dearth of courage and that it takes like a very special type of human being to give up everything yeah. towards trying to benefit the world through whatever they're trying to create. Um, and so I always refuse to charge the entrepreneurs. Um, and so in our very first reasonable Institute, we had this really hard challenge of like, okay, we don't have any credibility, so there's no way we're getting sponsorship. Um, so, and we didn't want to be a fund first. We wanted to be a community first. So traditionally, and we wouldn't have had the credibility to raise a fund anyways, but traditionally that's how I like an accelerator or an incubator might start is raise capital. Sure. I am, so I figured, okay, we need, we need to charge the entrepreneurs, but how do we charge them without having them pay? <laughs> and I remember having this, Teju Ravi Lochad was one of the, uh, guys on the founding team, one of my best friends that and we were, we were staying up all night. We'd snuck into the engineering school because we could use the classrooms 24 seven. And we're like whiteboarding, like, okay, charge them, but they can't pay. How the heck do you do that? This is in 2010 and realized, Whoa, whoa what about this new thing called crowdfunding? And, and I had, I went out, uh, Perry Chen then, uh, wasn't like a good friend, but was, was, was a friend. And we met in New York. He's the founder of Kickstarter. He was just starting Kickstarter. And I was like, you know, I, I have the same idea, but we're going to actually crowdfund the quote unquote tuition to get into the program. Yeah. Um, and the thing we loved about that was actually, that was going to be the final test. We, because we were working with earlier stage companies. We said, well, this will actually put your entrepreneurial metal to the test. I am, you know, can you crowdfund, you know, the costs of being able to come into this program? So we had, we had about a thousand applications for the first Unreasonable Institute. We narrowed that down to the top 50. We then sent the first 25 of you to raise the costs of attending this program, which I think was like $8,000 or so. Um, you'll get into the Unreasonable Institute. Um, immediately we realized there was a huge issue with that model. We called it the rich uncle problem, which is you have a, you know, former, li literally, you have a uh, Liberian former child soldier competing against, uh, you know, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Well, one of them can just have their uncle put $8,000 into the platform. Right. And so we, we were like, no, that doesn't work. That's not, that's not even close to representative of their entrepreneurial ability, right? It's representative of privilege. And yeah. so we said, okay, in the very first week, we're going to slow it down. The most any individual can give to you is $10. And in the second week, it's going to be $20. And the third week is going to be $50. And the fourth week is going to be $100. And so what ended up happening is to get into the program, you had to actually raise money from like a thousand people for a lot of these entrepreneurs, or sorry, not a thousand, at least a couple hundred. I think on average, it was about 200 people back the entrepreneurs, each who came in. Now, what was so cool is now we were able to charge them without them paying for it, but it was actually even way more of a benefit. Now they had a couple hundred people saying, I believe in you. Yeah. Like go figure it out. Yeah. Right. And so that was our first model. I am, um, and we really, we built 
you know, one of the first crowdfunding platforms and it was horribly stressful because I don't know how to code, neither did our team. And so that thing crashed like five times and we thought we were going to get sued and blah, 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 but it worked. It worked somehow. I am. And I, but then we switched models when we went to growth stage company, uh-huh. we realized that that was not a good use of the time of the entrepreneur because, you know, different types of valuable assets. One is money and certainly one is time. And in terms of a very expensive commodity, especially if you're at a growth stage as an entrepreneur. And so we realized not only can we not charge these entrepreneurs, I am, but we can't put up like a competition. They shouldn't be applying for this. We should be privately inviting them. And then we should cover all their costs and we'll never charge them anything. I am, I eat no equity, no rights, no guarantees, no warranties, no tuition, nothing. Um, That was a harder model. Then it was like, how the hell do we do that? And the realization then was if we were actually, this is an if, if we were successful in being able to build portfolios of companies that represented the most effective solutions on the planet towards specific global challenges, then we realized, well, you know, multinationals and governments would kill to be able to have proximity to that type of co- portfolio or community of companies. And so that's our business model today. We partner with multinationals. Our biggest partnership is with Barclays. Mm-hmm. As, as an example, we partner with the U.S. State Department. Uh, we work with foundations, with family offices, but large institutions. right? And, and, the, and the reason this has become so important is when we're talking about putting a dent on global challenges, we can't just have a bottom-up approach to change. Yeah. We also have to have a top-down approach to mm-hmm. transformation. And you know, Bar- Barclays, just as an example, we work with them to identify growth stage companies in the green economy that are rapidly creating jobs across Asia, Europe, and the Americas. Um, and um, throughout our partnership in the last couple of years, Barclays launched the first new coverage group their investment bank has launched in 70 years. Yeah. And it's focused exclusively on sustainable impact investing. It's now the fastest growing uh, track of the investment bank in, in the entire bank. Like They know that the future of business will be green. Right. The, the internet is a, is a good analogy. It's permeated every sector, every industry, soon to be every geography. Well, green's going to do the same. Mm-hmm. The, future, the, you know, the future tides of industry will be the companies that are benefiting the environment instead of extracting from it. They're just going to make more money and more value in the process. And so uh, it's a great example of how our partnership with a multinational can actually change their business practices and orient it towards, you know, in this case, a more sustainable future while helping rapidly scale up uh, you know, the work of, of the companies in the fellowship. Um, and so that's, that's the approach, but to answer your question, it was hard as sin. It took 10 <laughs> years. It literally took 10 years to make a reasonable profitable. Yeah. I am. And, and the entire time I'm bake rolling it off of personal loans from, uh, you know, a little bit from family. I think my, my parents, um, I, I was also, I have to acknowledge the privilege of the situation. I was in, my parents gave me a $200,000 loan. I am. Mm-hmm. Um, that is, game changing right and it's a loan i'm gonna pay it back but still it's like that's game changing to have somebody support you with with that kind of capital at that stage i i borrowed money um, from friends i maxed out eight credit cards i was about a million dollars in debt Um, i remember at that stage i'm literally this was this is the hardest it got million dollars in debt maxed out on eight credit cards i have a negative negative money uh, across my bank accounts and I don't know how I'm going to make payroll in two weeks. And I was used to not knowing how I was going to make payroll, but this was getting pretty real. <laughs> um, and, and I sat, this is, this is many years into unreasonable. Yeah. This is like 20, this is probably 2018, I'm guessing, or 2017. Yeah. This is many years into the journey. And so you talk about imposter syndrome, right? And so I, I sat with one of our mentors in London and I'll keep, keep his name out of it because it's private, but sat with him and said, Hey, this is the reality. It's like, and I think we're going to get through it. 
I don't have, but I have, you know, a couple plans <laughs> we get through it. And he said, let me just, let me invest $10 million. So I'll believe so much in what you all are doing. Wow. Let me invest $10 million in the company. And I said, no, we cannot accept your money because so unre unreasonable. We've never raised investment. And the reason I've never raised investment is I never want to have pressure on having a liquidity event. Mm -hmm. I want us to be able to think long-term and just do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way as best we can. And financing, puts new pressures understandably on a company. Right. And, and I remember how shockingly easy it was to say no to that, even when I really needed it. And luckily yeah. we, we got through it and it was you know, a partnership with, with Pearson came into play and then, the, then a partnership with Barclays came into play. And so I had, I had reasonable confidence that those were going to come through, but no guarantees, but um, yeah, it was, but it's hard. It's hard to make community building into a business. I am, and I think it's just any company where you're trying to grow off of revenue uh, and where your, 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 your product is a service, that's going to take a long time. Yeah. And so I think, you know, folks who are considering it's like, just like, you got to believe in it and you have to love it yeah. um, to see it through. I agree. I agree. I think like a, a good recommendation for a lot of entrepreneurs out there is to start something that you could see yourself doing for the next 10 years. Right. Absolutely. Because it's too easy to, to, to focus on the short term, just try this little thing, you know, totally maybe a trend this. at the time and, and burn out. But real quick, I want to check your time because yeah. we're close to the top of the hour. Are you okay yeah. if we go over a bit? Like, or... we, I can go over five. Okay. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's wrap up then. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all your wisdom with us. I appreciate your mindset and your philosophy and your philosopher, entrepreneurship. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love that term. Um, but, uh, it's been so good to hear about, uh, your vulnerable side of yourself as an entrepreneur, you know, getting into massive debt and the challenges around that and building the community and taking years to focus yeah. on that, but also, um, being really, uh, really, really focused on making sure everything you get involved in is a win, 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 win mm -hmm. all around. And I think that's key going forward with, um, the entrepreneurship and, and, the, the coming years yeah. because we're slowly burning out that mindset of people have to lose oh, for you to win yeah. and slowly gaining um, the mindset of everybody can win at the same time. Um, but like you said, it's not happening fast enough. And yeah. We want it to. So, yeah. And we just constantly have to question it because yeah. e even ourselves, right? Like yeah. I, I'm sure there are still places in our model that we could be optimizing to have more people benefit. Yeah. I am. I just guarantee it. Right. And that, that's the thing is that growth mindset, constant questioning, um, is what really bears fruit, I think in the long term. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Yeah. Well, that's all I've got, man. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on the show. That was phenomenal. Any final, final words of wisdom you'd like to share? We, we didn't us? talk about anything I thought we were going to talk about. So that was fun <laughs> uh, because normally it's like, we'll get into investment and the bottles and all that stuff. Yeah. And it was, it was, I would just say, I appreciate you, um, creating the space to, hold a, 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 a really authentic conversation yeah. to go, go into more nuanced stuff. That's a, a less easy to you know, punch with a headline. 
uh, kind of thing. So I um, appreciate it very much. And anybody who listened this long, <laughs> appreciate you. Uh, I, you know, uh, you you can always you can always get in touch with us. It, it is just a reasonablegroup.com, and there's there's a contact form there, and, and that we look at all of that, and that goes to the right people in the organization. So. Um, you know, we're always hiring, we're always growing, we're always looking for more mentors. We work with a couple hundred investors right now, a couple thousand, or not a couple thousand, a thousand different funds, a yeah. um, bunch of partners. And so we, we believe in the collaborative advantage. I just say, if anybody wants to, um, you know, find ways to partner, we'd love to explore that. Yeah. I love that, man. Um, I'd love to keep going, but we can't, but so, I know. <laughs> Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for yeah. sharing all your tips and tricks and wisdom with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to wrap up. Listeners, thank you guys for tuning in once again, and we'll see you on the next episode. Goodbye, everybody. Hey, listeners, thanks for joining us. And once again, we wanted to remind you about our adventures and trips for entrepreneurs in our private community. If you enjoy luxury trips to the Caribbean, going on bucket list adventures around the world, or just traveling to connect with other established entrepreneurs, then be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to stay connected at thebusinessmethod.com. That's thebusinessmethod.com. Thanks for joining the show today, and we'll see you on the next episode.